The blessedness that's ours this morning is certainly a marked one indeed. To be able to come together with the gracious goodness of God shining ever present upon us. To recognize that health and the other temporal blessings of this life, certainly in concord with the great spiritual blessings we enjoy through Jesus, Ephesians 1 verse 3, set the stage for a marvelous first day of the week. And certainly we're appreciative of the presence of each and every one that's been able to gather today. If I might take just a moment and add one brief announcement to those that were made a bit earlier. I know it is still some weeks away, but it would not be inappropriate, it seems to me, to make note of our gospel meeting that will be arriving seven weeks from today. Brother James Watkins will be with us. Perhaps we all know him from his television ministry. What a wonderful opportunity it shall be starting the 27th of April. Again, seven weeks from today. Let's keep that marked on our calendars, begin to invite, to encourage, and to work toward a marvelous and fruitful gospel meeting. As you can see on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson today, also as presented in the bulletin, has to do with a very sobering and penetrating set of questions concerning eternity. We understand each of us that we are marching without question toward that great eternal beyond. As we do so, though, the thoughts that sometimes redound in our mind can bring interesting questions and perhaps a bit of uneasiness. One of those questions that we'll turn our attention to today has to do with various degrees associated with reward in heaven or of punishment in that abode known as hell. By way of introduction, might I ask you to at least think about some opening thoughts with me? As we understand that you and I are immortal beings, you and I are immortal spirits. That is to say, you and I shall never cease to be. Once we were conceived in our mother's womb, from that point forward we will never die. Indeed, while here in the flesh, we appreciate that our existence is tempered by that fleshly character. We understand the characterizations of feel and touch and taste and other things like that. But we also know that if the Lord delays His coming, whether that be the case or whether it in fact be such that He does arrive, we will be transformed into a spiritual host with a spiritual body, but even then our spirit shall not cease to be. We can readily see then that there are many passages in which the Bible encourages us to think about eternity. I well understand that our finite mind can't fully grasp it in all of its marvelous measure, but are we not told that the Son of God Himself in Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9 Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he, he became the author of eternal life. The author of eternity, of eternal life, if you will, in the language of that text. Or might we well notice that promise of 1 John 2, verse 24 and 25. Especially verse 25 that reminds us this is the promise that he promised us, even eternal life. It must be a sad existence indeed to have no faith nor hope to carry one beyond the grave. And yet we understand throughout the nature of God's Word there is a vibrant hope and an ever-charactered reality that there is life beyond the grave. However, it is to be noted that the Bible only unfolds two potential places of eternal abode. One of them is the glorious abide or abode known as heaven. That place where God's throne is, Psalm 11 verse 4, that place where our Savior ascended to in Acts 1 verse 11. That place where the man named Stephen, even as he was being stoned to death, looked up into heaven and saw the Lord and Jesus at His right hand. And is it not that same place described in words virtually indescribable in Revelation 21? 
this place where, in fact, John, the aged apostle, was able to see this place where there was no defilement, this place where there was no need for the light because God and Christ were the plenty light indeed. Furthermore, no need for a temple there. Those things alone whet our appetite to be in a place like that. Because on the other hand, the only other possibility, that place described as the four-letter word hell. Gehenna, as Jesus would call it more than once. This was a place prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. It's a place described as an unquenchable fire where the worm dieth not. Jesus himself made those statements in Mark 9, 43 to 48. And perhaps in conclusion, might we notice even John saw in Revelation chapters 19 and 20 that the beast, the dragon, and all of those who were their followers were cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone, and there they forever found their abode. You and I see there are two dramatic choices. There is a heaven and there is a hell. This life now that is mine and yours in the flesh is a time of preparation. We are now deciding which one of those eternal abodes will be ours. I would suggest that we at least give a moment's reflection to a question that may well be asked concerning those eternal abodes. Is it the case that whether one is in heaven or whether one is in hell, that one's experience of that place is identical to all others that are there? Or are there degrees, if you will, of reward of those that are in heaven? And on the other hand, degrees of appreciated punishment of those who are consigned to hell? That'll be the question primarily set before us this morning. As we seek to answer that, let's divide the lesson from this point onward into two parts. First, let's approach the side of heaven. Does the Bible teach you and me that there are indeed degrees of reward, if you will, associated with that marvelous abode known as heaven? Let's begin that discussion by looking at some passages relating to the judgment itself. We realize that there shall be this occasion in which you and I shall stand before the august presence of the great God of heaven. And as we appreciate Jesus Christ, His blessed Son and our Savior, will stand as judge. But notice some language concerning the very nature of that judgment. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Paul's salient refrain of Romans 14, 12, reminding us not only there but other places that when you and I stand in judgment, it'll be an individual judgment. No person shall give account for another, no matter the degree of love or communion they may have experienced in this fleshly existence. I will give account for Randy Bybee, not my parents, not my wife, not my children. I will give account for the disposition of the deeds done in the body and the disposition of how I've carried out the nature of the commands of God. And the same will be true for each and every one of us with regard to your own personal life. But doesn't that let us see the nature of how the Lord will mete out His judgment? May I call attention to some language that is ever so telling with regard to how that judgment will be brought forth. Might we begin in Matthew 16, 27. I've listed the statement in a number of ways. But in Matthew 16, 27, we read that indeed the Son of Man shall come with the holy angels, with all the glory of the Father, and shall render or reward every man according to his works. Notice that the resulting disposition, the resulting judgment will be according to each man's works. But let us consider another. 
in Romans 2, verse number 6, we read, Who shall render to every man according to his works, according to his deeds? Or that text, for instance, in Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12, as we near the ending of the entirety of the Word of God, we read there that the books will be opened, and everyone shall receive the things in accordance as his works shall be. In each of those instances, as well as a text from Proverbs in the Old Testament, we notice that there's been a similarity of presentation, according as his deeds, according as his works. I've listed the meaning of what that word according to means. That word means simply as the following. It means just as, or in reference to, or corresponding to. And hence, that text in Matthew 16, 27 could well be rendered or read by you and me this way, as a son of man appears with the glory of his Father, with his holy angels, he will reward every man in correspondence to his works, or just as his works have been, in reference to his works. And that, after all, is a sentiment expressed in the reading that was read in their hearing just a few moments earlier. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Again, there's that same wording, according to. As you can see, this already seems to be suggesting that there is indeed a degree of distinction regarding those rewards in heaven, for the reward is according to one's works. So if one's works are not all identical and all of equal character and equal nature, then it would seem that the reward is also to be distinguished in the same way. But that isn't all the scriptures have to say. Might we in fact look at other passages that may amplify these thoughts? So far we have seemed to see that there will be degrees of reward in heaven. Let us notice in fact some of these others. What about the teachings of Jesus? As we consider the teachings of Jesus, the first one I would list for your consideration is found in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Our blessed Savior on that occasion made a rather interesting comment, and a profound one at that, as of course all of his comments were. As he spoke about a prophet, and as he spoke about a righteous man, this is what our Savior uttered. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. But he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. Jesus distinguished the reward of a prophet to the reward of a righteous man. He asserted there was in some sense a distinction or difference between them. And not only that, he distinguished them from all other kinds of rewards, or else the language would have had little, if any, meaning at all. There is a reward corresponding to or in association with a righteous man, and similarly such can be stated relative to, to a prophet. As Jesus uttered that remark, he was discussing in context the nature of the greatness of reward beyond and the greatness and thoroughness to be seen concerning that distinction. That is only extended when we look into the next chapter. For Jesus has, seems had much more to say about these thoughts and concepts. Look with me also, if you would, at what we see about the parable of the talents. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, a very familiar parable was uttered by our Savior. And though the familiarity is ever so easily understood, may I call our attention to some of the thoughts found in it. We'll not read that parable in its entirety. 
But there was a man who himself was preparing to take a distant journey. And as he made preparation for that, he distributed his money to various of his servants. We remember that to one servant he gave five talents. To another he gave two talents. To another he gave one talent. And the distribution was according to each man's ability. The time came when the gentleman returned. And he made a reckoning or accounting with those who were his servants. First, there was the man who had been given five talents. He was able to state by virtue of what he had accomplished with the nature of the blessing that that five talent had gained five more. The master was well pleased. And in verse 21, he uttered, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Next was the two-talent man. We also remember that he, with the transactions that he had accomplished, was such that that two-talent amount had gained two more. Again, the master was pleased. Might we already pause to note, is it the case that the master expected this one with two talents to return and present as many as the five-talent man? Apparently not, for again, he was completely satisfied. The man had done a very good job. The two talents had gained two more, and in verse 23, there's practically verbatim language in compliment to the two-talent man. Finally, there was the one-talent man. We notice here that he, it would seem, thought that things would go well when he presented back the one talent he had been given. For after all, he said he hid it. And he himself made the statement, I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Thou reapest where thou hadst not sowed, thou gatherest where thou hadst not strawed. However, when he presented it back, the master not only was displeased, he said, Thou wicked and slothful servant. He, in fact, accused this man of being absolutely wicked, cast him into outer darkness, verse number 30. We quickly noticed something. This one talent man, by virtue of what was expected of him, had failed. Now, he wasn't expected to return an equivalent amount to the two-talent man or the five-talent man. But was it not expected that he would be able, by his ability and capability, to accomplish what he would have been able to do? We already see something rather profound. Namely, at the judgment, we each shall be judged based on what we could have accomplished. And that'll be different one person to another. Not all of us have the same abilities. Not all of us have the same capabilities. But God does expect us to do what we can with what we have. That was the basis of the difficulty with the one-talent man. He took and hid what he had. He hadn't used it. He hadn't employed it to the service of God. He hadn't made use of that in a way to benefit the nature of Christ's kingdom. That helps us see then that at the judgment, God will be infinitely powerful and able to judge by the very nature of the heart. In fact, are we not warned of that in Hebrews 5, 12 to 14? For in fact, as we exercise ourselves, we know that word of God's able to judge and even divide to the very essence of spirit and soul, joints and marrow. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Those thoughts challenge us to consider also this. We need to look at yet another parable and use its teaching in conjunction with this one and we will have reached a dramatic conclusion. In Luke the 19th chapter, we encounter a different parable. This was the parable of the pounds. Now this is not the same as the parable of the talents. They were spoken on different occasions to different audiences. They obviously are distinctly different. 
And yet this time, notice what the Savior taught. He spoke of another man who, in preparation to go into a distant place and receive a kingdom, divided his means amongst several of his servants. Ten pounds is what was divided. As he divided the ten pounds, each was expected to occupy therewith until he returned. When he returned, this is what he discovered. There was a man who had been given one pound, and yet he was able to present back ten pounds. The master was very pleased. In fact, so pleased that he blessed him dramatically and told him that he would now be ruler over ten cities. There was one who'd been given five, uh, one pound, and his pound had gained five pounds. Again, the master was exceedingly pleased and told him, Be thou ruler over five cities. Then there was a one-pound man who not only did not use that pound, he in fact was such that again was condemned by the master. We notice some similarities, of course, but again, very diff great differences between that parable and the previous. What may be some great lessons here? Notice again, we are each expected to do what we can with what we have. But now this time, notice the reward. The previous one had merely said in Matthew 25, Be thou ruler over many things. This time, one was given ten cities. One was given five cities. Does that indicate to you and me there will be a distinction in the character of the reward given based on the opportunity and faithfulness with which one had utilized the capabilities, skills, and talents that he had been given? Ten cities versus five. Might we notice that there's every indication in that parable that had that one pound man been faithful to do that which he had and had returned one pound, he'd have been given rulership over one city. And that would have been a pleasingly great thing for him. We also notice some of the things that we state there on the screen. This parable of the pounds in conjunction with the previous tells us that God shall expect us at judgment to have been faithful with respect to our obligations and duties and our personal capabilities. And then also to realize the reward will be in conjunction and in accordance to, in correspondence, if you will, to that degree of faithfulness that we had enjoined. Will there be degrees of reward in heaven? Absolutely. Will that be in proportion to or in accordance to the degree of our faithfulness with regard to what God allowed us? to exhibit by virtue of talent and skill, absolutely. These statements help us see that that conclusion seems certain and sure. Might we notice, though, that perhaps other things could be said. But before we look at them, let's look at the version in terms of punishment in hell first. In a similar way, will there be varying degrees of punishment in hell? I'd invite your attention to some passages in that line as well. Might we begin by noting that those same verses that we considered earlier also touch greatly the subject here. Notice that at the judgment, if God will render to every man according to his deeds and according to his works, not only does that answer with regard to the side of blessed, blessedness and favor, it also answers to the side of cursed and being in disfavor. Those thus who have not obeyed the commandment of the Lord those who have found themselves separated from the marvelous love of His Son, might it be noted that they also shall receive according to their deeds, according to their works. 
that also seems to indicate that there will be a variety in terms of the punishment, degrees, if you will, of the punishment in hell. But there's much more that well might be said about that context as well. At the very bottom of that screen, let us turn our attention back to Matthew chapter 10. On that occasion, in that chapter, we remember the Lord delivered the limited commission. That is, He commissioned His apostles to proceed and to preach and to teach and to share forth the good news of the nature of Christ. However, in the same time and in the same place as He delivered that injunction to preach, He told them something rather dramatic in verse number 15 of chapter 10. He specifically spoke that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment more tolerable for those of ancient days than for these of your day to whom you preach if they will not receive your message. Let us listen to that language again. It will be more tolerable for those in previous centuries and previous times, Jesus said, than it will be for those of this current day, those to whom you preach if they will not receive your message. What does that phrase more tolerable mean? Well, it obviously indicates that there, in some sense it will be a matter of distinction between how the result on the day of judgment will turn out. Degrees, if you will, of punishment. Now they in the Old Testament, Jesus said, did not accept. But notice they had fewer opportunities. The Lord had not come to the earth at that time. There was no fullness of the gospel ministration. However, He said they too will not be such that they'll be found blessed. But it'll be more tolerable for them than it will be for those of our day who now that the Savior has come and they've rejected Him. What a sobering reflection. The matter only heightens and deepens when we turn the page to the next chapter. In Matthew chapter 11, one more time as the Savior discusses the judgment, I'd ask you to notice very interestingly the language of Matthew 11, verse number 21. The discussion again with respect to the day of judgment. And these are the words of the Savior Himself. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. The Savior uses a bit of history to teach a dramatic lesson. We immediately know that these two initial cities that He referenced Chorazin on the one hand, Bethsaida on the other. Those were new first century cities situated near the Sea of Galilee. They were places where Jesus or His apostles or others often spoke about the nature of the gospel, the nature of what it meant to serve God. On the other hand, Tyre and Sidon were cities situated in the northwestern part of Palestine, coastal towns if you will. These were Phoenician cities by and large. And yet Jesus says, note again the language, if Tyre and Sidon had been blessed to see what Chorazin and Bethsaida had seen, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And not only that, verse 22 drives the point home ever so clearly. It shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. What is the Lord saying? They, namely Tyre and Sidon, lived again in an age long past from the first century time. The Savior had not come. God had not opened the disposition of His will in the Christian age. Yet, they themselves were not pleasing unto Him, but compare that to Bethsaida and Chorazin. 
Here were New Testament cities. Jesus had walked there, worked miracles there, preached there. And his apostles had taught there as well. And yet they, due to their unbelief, had not accepted the Savior. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. An indication of a distinction, a varying degree of reward on the side of heaven, but here, varying degrees of punishment on the side of disfavor to God. In verse 23, Capernaum will meet the same fate. We remember Capernaum was the headquarters of our Lord's personal ministry. That headquartership meant that Jesus often labored there, worked there, performed miracles there, and so did His apostles. And yet, verse 23 says, Thou Capernaum, which art exalted into heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And then verse 24, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. We remember that Sodom was a wicked city of Genesis 19 where God rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed it due to its immorality. Here Jesus says, Capernaum, you have been exalted in the sense that you've been favored. The Son of God has walked in your midst. You have seen Him. You've watched Him. You've listened to Him. Oh, what opportunities you have had. However, they by and large had rejected Him. And then on the day of judgment, he says, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for you. You see, we'll be judged in part as reflective of the opportunities we've had here. Those who have had greater opportunities will be judged more harshly. More will be expected of them. Those with more ability will be judged more harshly in that, that God expects more of those in that situation. Do we notice here that there is this usage of the phrase more tolerable? That again means an imp direct implication, these de varying degrees of punishment in hell. But our Savior isn't quite finished yet even. Notice also in Matthew chapter 12, yet one more chapter further. Other statements can also be seen and made. Let's notice verses 41 through 43 of that chapter. On this occasion, Jesus had been asked to present a sign. We would see a sign from thee. The Savior quickly noted, there will be no sign given except the sign of the prophet Jonas. Upon the following of that remark, the Lord taught some other dramatic teaching. Notice especially in verse number 41. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. That takes us back to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah was that person whom God said, go and preach against Nineveh and cry against it. Of course, Jonah was reluctant at first. He, in fact, tried to run and hide from God, but he was unable to do so. Finally, upon his being vomited forth from that great fish, God told him again, you go to Nineveh and preach. And in Jonah 3, verse 2, we read, Jonah, preach the preaching which I bid thee to preach. You tell what I have given you to tell. Jonah did so. Nineveh repented. God spared them. And yet notice here, Jesus says, I'm telling you, a greater than Jonah is here. Of whom was he speaking? Himself. Jesus is greater than Jonah. The gospel, the preaching he had set forth, and yet the people of his day often refused to submit, to listen, to obey. 
The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And yet greater than Jonah is here. Notice in the next verse, the same thing is said with regard to the Queen of Sheba. There was an occasion in 1 Kings where a lady, a Queen of Sheba, came to visit Solomon. She came and observed the greatness and wealth that he possessed. But then she noted the half of it hadn't even been told me. Jesus' reference to that goes like this. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. You and I live, of course, now in this gospel era. The Savior has come. To turn our back upon Him is certainly a great thing. And it is not equal to turning one's back on Isaiah or Jeremiah or the, those of the Old Testament. Certainly neither is commendable. Both will be judged disfavorably by God. But will those who've rejected Christ be judged equally to those that rejected Isaiah or Elijah or one of the others? No. He says they will rise and condemn this generation because they repented or in fact appreciated that a greater than Solomon or a greater than Jonah is now here. All those statements help us see that the New Testament sets forth language that teaches us not only will there be degrees of reward in heaven, there will also be degrees of punishment in that terrible abode known as hell. As we draw near the conclusion of the lesson, there are two more passages I would especially draw to your attention. One of which is especially found in Hebrews 10 verse 29. Of how much sorer punishment Notice the language. Sore punishment shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. It is a terrible thing to have rejected God in any age, to have rejected His will at any time. But notice the inspired writer says that there shall be those deserving of sore punishment, that is, severer punishment, more extensive punishment who have rejected the Savior. That's not a light thing to allow pass by our mind, is it? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, notice the adjective much is employed. Much more in terms of punishment, in terms of those who will not escape the wrath of God under the New Testament era. We've often reflected on the fact that in this gospel era, we are blessed indeed. Peter even made note of that in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 13. We now have what the angels desired to look into, what the prophets longed to experience. But might we also on the other side of that coin appreciate, though we're more blessed, we also will be held accountable to more. We live under the gospel era. These passages have taught us that if we reject then the Savior, if we're unfaithful to Him in this era, oh, how much sorer our punishment will be by virtue of what greater opportunities we had. Perhaps the final point to note in the lesson would be one other text uttered from the lips of our Savior. It's in Luke, the 12th chapter. I'd ask you to read that text with me, especially beginning in verse 47 of Luke, chapter 12. And listen to how Jesus describes the nature of what shall occur with regard to the judgment and the events that follow it. Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 47. This is found in a context where our Savior discusses faithfulness and how that those who are judged unfaithful quite sometimes by virtue of laziness or by virtue of apathy have failed to do that which they should. 
in that context, he says, And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him shall they ask the more. Might we notice that there was described a servant who, due to ignorance, did not know that which he ought to have been doing. When the master returned, he nonetheless will be beaten, but it will be beaten with few stripes. For he sinned, if you will, or failed out of ignorance. But notice, he was punished. On the other hand, that servant who knew what the master wanted, he simply chose not to do it for whatever reason. And, but, and it doesn't matter what the reason was. He'll be beaten with many stripes. Oh, how sore a matter it shall be at judgment for those who knew what God wanted. They perhaps knew enough of the Bible to know the plan of salvation and yet never submitted to it. They'll be judged with the harshest of all possible punishments. For they, you see, according to 2 Peter 2, 18-22, are the very ones who it would have been better had they never known the way of salvation than to have known it and turned aside from it. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Degrees of reward in heaven? Absolutely. Degrees of punishment in hell? Certainly. We may summarize the lesson with some language of this form. We've noted that the greatness of heaven is such that it doesn't matter the degree to which you and I may be there. I believe any of us would happily take the lowest station in heaven and be eternally content with it. On the other hand, I might suggest the least of the punishments in hell will be far worse than anything we'd ever want to contemplate. The word of warning from the Scriptures is we shouldn't take any chances. Let's don't bank on getting into hell and it be one of the better places in it, for there are no good places in hell. But on the other hand, may we labor and work in faithfulness to the Master Desiring even whatever the reward shall be for us in heaven, the lowest station alone will be the grandest thing forevermore. In Psalm 84.10, we remember the psalmist on one occasion noted how glorious it is to dwell in the tents of God, even if it means just keeping the door places. You and I happily be the guard of the door at heaven. The lowest station would be enough, but friend... We each need to make certain we've lived in such a way to attain that, not by virtue of our works, for we can't earn it, but by virtue of faithfulness to God and His reward on that behalf. How would you classify yourself today? And how would I classify myself? Are you the one-pound person who will be able upon occupation to be blessed and to be considered faithful? Or might we be the one-pound person who hasn't done what we could with what we had? It'll be a sad state to be in that latter condition. Today, are you faithful to God? If you've never become a Christian, there will never be a better day than this one. This day, the 9th of March, 2008. Your spiritual birthday. The day the Lord adds you to the church. The day He washes your sins away. The day that you now have your name enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life. If we could give you assistance in accomplishing that today, realize that the Lord demands that you believe upon Him. You also repent of your sins. He requires that you confess His name verbally, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And He commands that you be baptized. Not that you've already been saved, but in order for Him to wash your sins away, Acts 2.38. If you've never done that, let today be the day. 
If you have become a Christian at some former time, but you've lost sight of the faithfulness and the character of what it means to live in Jesus, come back to that first love. The Lord is knocking ever so wonderfully on the door of your heart. He wants you to open the door. And when you open it, He will rush into your life and He will fill your life with all the goodness unfolded in His Word. You need, you need to make that first step today. If you need to do that, will you not let it be known in a public way while together we stand and while we sing?